0: about to hear my conversation with Paula Granger. She is the non-proliferation and terrorism studies student who beat me out in the Graduate School of International Policy and Management GSIPM senator race earlier this school year, Uh, but I couldn't be more pleased that she's been representing the people in the GSIPM school this school year. Her emails to us are usually concise and entertaining and colorful, and the last one was about ice cream. What more could you ask? On a more serious note, uh, Paula is a veteran, and she is a woman veteran, and she is actually continuing to serve in the National Guard, so she has a great perspective on what it means to be a veteran here at MISS and in larger American society in the world. So that's what we talked about. Uh, We talked about her experience as a veteran and a lot of things she'd like to clear up about what that means to her, what that means to the larger veteran community, and also just how human veterans are and how they ought to be treated as such. Uh, I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation because she has a lot to offer us in terms of creating compassionate relationships with the people who've served in the armed forces. Without any further ado, here is Paula Granger, NPTS grad of May 2019. That's coming right up. Here she is. It's March 15th. Shortly after 1 p.m., we're sitting here in MG220. Paula Granger is our guest today. Paula. Yes. Who are you?
1: I'm Paula Granger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good question. I don't know that you have enough time for me to answer that. I'm still figuring that part out, but my role since I've been here at NITS has been a lot of different roles, including working with the veterans organization as president, vice president, communications officer, my current role, senator for GSIPM, added paper driver. <laughs> I like to do that in my leisure. Very important to me. It's really hard to find a good shredder that is industrial strength, that you know wow. the paper that no,
0: actually have to thread That's these are considerations I would never take into account. I'm glad somebody's doing it. Thank goodness. So, in your capacity as communications director for the veterans, what do you what do you call yourself here? The group. Okay, and what is the group called?
2: It's The Miss Veterans Organization.
0: All right. So today you're kind of representing veterans at Miss. Mm-hmm. No big deal. (laughs) You're used to it at this point. Yeah. Totally monolithic (laughs) you as a group veterans, but that's why we're here because that is actually not the case. Mm -hmm. So just a couple weeks ago, I interviewed Jack Murphy at the Veterans Transition Center. Mm -hmm. And after having spoken with you, we were brainstorming before this podcast. When I asked him what, first of all, which branch of the military did you serve in? It was really strange for me to not, I had to stop myself uh, from asking, wh- wh- where did you serve? And then just immediately saying, thank you for your service.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because I remembered our conversation. Right. So I want to know when, if ever, is it appropriate to thank a veteran for his or her service? Uh, how is that received? Because it's you guys do work that means a lot, means everything in a mm-hmm. certain way.
1: I mean, I think that's a really fair and a really good question. I can answer from my perspective. And also I'd ask a couple other veterans here at MIS to tell me what they thought about it because we have different experiences. I'm in the Army National Guard, and I've been in for nine years now. I've never deployed overseas, so my service has been here in the States. I've had a tour of duty, the one that I would say that's the highlight of my National Guard career so far, and it was at a remote branch of the United States Cyber Command. So for, if I'm in uniform or someone thanks me for my service, for some reason, i have this immediate response of, I'm not sure that I necessarily deserve that because there's this interesting, an interesting connection with deployment uh, overseas and also your service. So I don't know that, of course, this is probably doesn't extend to all, all service members, but just from my perspective, my first response is, well, I really haven't done anything quite yet. Which isn't true, but it was still my first response. Usually my response to people is they thank me. I believe they're genuine and I, I will say thank you for your support. Now, it's a difficult situation because people do want to show their support for veterans and sometimes they don't know how and that's a way, you know, that, that they feel like they can. I talked to uh, Orlando Cruz, to mm-hmm. said that he did not yeah. mind being identified with his comment on this, and he said, "Insofar as being thankful for my service, I think it's become rather disingenuous. Very little substance to it, and just a way for the person saying to say it to feel good about themselves." That said, I can gather, and I would wager, you were talking about me mm-hmm. as well, when someone sincerely expresses the sentiment, gen- uh, generally rather. They would rather not have someone thank them for their service, Hmm. which is interesting. You might remember James Smith also in here. He had a little bit longer of a response, but I can boil it down to basically he was saying that, once again, if it's genuine, it's meaningful, but it's often better if someone were to get to know the veteran, you know, and it not be just out as a public display. You get to know the person and then you can be curious about it and you're inquiring about the person and not just this Front facing image of veterans. So
0: I'm, I'm hearing if you're really grateful for someone's service, the best way to express that is to get to know them yeah. and learn who they are beyond just a member of the armed service.
1: You're right. And I would say, too, just a reminder this is a small sampling mm-hmm. of a very specific very group of people at a specific policy school. So I wouldn't blanket, blanket statement this, but I think that's what demonstrates the point of this talk is that there are so much, there's so much diversity within service members and the group of service members and veterans. So these are some of the thoughts.
0: Yeah. And that was kind of what I wanted to get into next. Uh, the word soldier, of course, is one that really only applies to one element of the armed services. Mm-hmm. I, I'd love for you to give me kind of a as good of an overview as possible in a short period of time of the differences in duties between, say, soldier a marine an airman or a member of any other branch of the armed services what are the critical kind of differences in the kind of work you do maybe the ethos of these different branches
1: well it's kind of complicated like everything else because being in the army national guard we have the same type of rank structure as active duty in fact oftentimes national guardsmen will just take orders somewhere. they'll go what we would call after for a short period of time, so that remains the thing throughout the army and with soldiers. but then there is a rank structure of enlisted versus commissioned officers and then warrant officers. that's that's a, that's the rank structure mm-hmm. versus each well, each of the services have their own rank structure. Not every service has say a warrant officer like the Army does. For instance, the Air Force doesn't have warrant officers, they just have enlisted, and they have officers. So that might be a little confusing, but I would say that they're different names for general groups of people in that particular service and within the rank structures, with every service, there are different jobs. So for instance, I'm trained as a Persian Barcy cryptologic language. That's different than an infantryman mm-hmm. in the army, even though we have our soldierly duties as enlisted people. Of course, you never call a Marine a soldier, which if everyone's seen that meme of Mad Dog Mattis, Mm. and I think it was President Trump called him a soldier, and there's just a zeroing in on Mm. his face. It's really funny. But that's just, for some reason, that's one of the big no-no's in all across services, is you never call a Marine a soldier.
0: It's kind of like calling a chef a cook.
1: in a sense, because
0: they like to conceive of themselves as having more responsibility, more sort of creativity in what they do, uh, refinement, perhaps. Hmm. Are there attitudes like that in the military where, whether it's among the different branches, sort of tensions in terms of like superiority or responsibility or just the roles that they fulfill? Or is there sort of Just mutual respect. What is your sense of that?
1: I would say all of those things because you have individuals with an array of responses to to stimuli. I would say as large groups or organizations, there's a healthy, playful competitiveness between the services that we like to joke. You know, the Air Force is the chair force and everybody gets to joke with airmen on that or The Marines are the jarheads and, you know, not necessarily, people don't think of them as the most intellectual, which isn't true, by the way, Hmm. but I'm just saying we joke with one another about these different, it's it's playful. There is respect, I would say, largely in broad strokes as groups, but of course, within, I've heard individuals not want to join, say, the Army because they thought the training was not tough enough, so Hmm. they tried to join the Marines or people switch between services for a variety of reasons. Some people don't want to join the air force because they don't think that it is military enough. And it's just different people have gone to different services and even further different jobs within the different services and even further than that, different rank structures within the services and jobs for different reasons. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm bringing in some sort of improvised questions here because of what I heard yesterday when you were presenting your ideas for commencement speech. Um, as a, as a woman in the armed forces, in the National Guard in your case, uh, can you describe any situations where – we're, we're going to get to perceptions from the public soon, but perceptions within the military that you've had over your career uh, as far as your cap- capacities as a woman, mm-hmm. uh, your capacities as a National Guards person, whatever aspect. But are there misconceptions even within the military of the abilities and roles that you might uh, find yourself in, as a
1: woman,
0: as a woman, or whatever your particular you know, as as a Persian Farsi um, linguist. linguist. Mm-hmm. So, were there any preconceptions that really just don't bear out? That's an
1: interesting question. I think with with the context of the backdrop in my commencement speech pitch yesterday, mm-hmm. in case people didn't hear that, was basically that the idea was in my head, as long as I can remember, I had the idea or feeling that I don't belong here, no matter where here was. So, here was an, an undergrad, like I mentioned, where my, I've had a professor tell me I couldn't learn mathematics for a computer course, and then here was being in formation. And actually right up at DLI I was in formation and a man came up to me, another soldier, and told me I didn't belong there because I was a woman in formation. And I had instances like that that reinforced that idea that I didn't belong here, that there was something that was outside of my element. And There are people who feel that way in the military that I've come across. I don't know, though, that they're, I would say they're not the majority. I would say they're a very small minority. I will say that in my mind now, looking back, now that I'm older and I've been in a while and I've had more of a range of opportunities and experiences, that that narrative in my head, every time one comment like that happened, it would reinforce that narrative. Hmm. And so what happened was I became my own worst enemy in a way to where and a lot of people who are of minority status you know women are considered minority status although we're not the minority number is that you feel like you have to be an example and a lot of people of color can understand that and talk about that you feel like you have to be representative of whatever group you belong to so you work harder i remember in one particular instance i had this guy who was a soldier who would just constantly I don't want to say harassment because it wasn't sexual harassment or anything, but he would just kind of bully me in a way, mm. constantly talking about how I was a woman and my, my, the standards for the Army physical training test were different based on age and gender, and they're now trying to change that. Tomorrow, actually, i have text for a pilot for the new Army combat, combat fitness test. But he would make it a point in front of people to talk about this and how there shouldn't be different standards as if it was my fault And in fact, I outperformed him, even according to with the standards at that time. (laughs) I could do more push-ups, I could run faster, and I could do more sit-ups, which was the test at the time. It didn't matter. He just saw me as a woman and that's it. Hmm. So he had an issue. But that's not the majority of people that I've come in contact with. To reiterate what I was saying, though, it didn't matter that it wasn't the majority because
0: it was your experience. It was
1: my experience, and that minority just reinforced my already preset notion, which I've worked really hard. And Miss being at Miss has really helped me, like I had mentioned yesterday, question a lot of that narrative. And yeah. friends who just flat out tell me you're your worst enemy, because sometimes you have to you have to talk yourself out of that and recognize that this is just it's confirmation bias. So. I've met some amazing, incredible people in the military. I have been forced to work with people who genuinely didn't like me because I was a woman and told me to my face. And yet those were the most rewarding times I had because Hmm. we worked together despite that. We were able to work together. They knew how, how they felt about me, you know, affected me that those things don't matter. It's like they matter, but it's like having a big family yeah. where despite your differences, you still have to be respectful to one another and you work together towards a common goal. And I think that's extremely valuable. because so what can you really learn from working with people that are, that think just like you and believe just like you do?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, having a little bit of pushback is usually constructive in these mm-hmm. contexts, but in those cases with, when you're working with other uh, members of the service Soldiers in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're an art member of the army.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Did you find that those relationships became, well, did they improve after spending time working together? If they were somewhat prejudiced against you at the beginning, did you find that working with them through whatever, uh, training or problem solving or just whatever the work was, did it get better?
1: In those particular instances, I don't know that the relationships themselves got better because they were temporary temporary yeah. situations. But I will say that I learned not to take those things personally and act off of that because I learned that that wasn't necessarily representative, and that's their opinion. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. There was mandate for me to be there. I already had, you know, there was no. There was no one saying, oh, well, because he thinks that, then it must be true, and so therefore out out of the army you go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I constantly struggle with, and it's getting better, you know. At what point is it the individual's responsibility to not take things personally and to deal with those emotions Mm -hmm. internally and figure out why it bothers them? How, at what point in so? how long do I grapple and struggle with that on the inside before I'm supposed to say something outwardly to the person? Right. And so I am a big believer in what the Army used to promote is if you have a problem with someone, you go to that person first and you try to resolve it. And then from there, if your attempts don't work, then you move up. You know, go to the next person, the next person. Now, I, I try to still go by that rule, but I think I did learn to just recognize the source what's going on that's their problem mm-hmm. and it's not my problem until i make it my problem
0: at what point and th- this kind of speaks to the same context around say you know th- there's the issue of the transgender ban
2: mm-hmm.
0: right now across different military branches and of course there was the don't ask don't tell policy and all of that kind of stems from this argument and please elaborate or correct me if i'm wrong the argument that unit cohesion is threatened by identities that essentially <laughs> upset overly sensitive people mm-hmm. in a unit. So whether, whether it's because you're a woman or whether it's because you're gay or transgender or Muslim, Jewish, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, what has your experience been with these identities being out in the open in a group that has to work together?
1: Well, let me first reiterate that this is only my opinion. Yeah, of course. And as an individual, I have a range of thoughts about one topic that I'm not necessarily standing behind because I'm still struggling with it or grappling sure. with it. Sure. But I will say, you know, don't ask, don't tell was repealed. Mm-hmm. So we no longer have that really formally to contend with. I'm sure that in some units that's a real problem. I've lucked out because my unit in California is just not like that. It's just... Not like that. No one, I would say it's probably one of the most culturally progressive groups of people I know in general. And then on top of that, you're just not gonna hear those things, mm-hmm. which is really refreshing. And if if we did hear something, they're mindful of, if you were to bring that up, well, they'll contend with it because the tone is at the top. And so yeah. whatever the commander and the first sergeant, the, the tone that they set is, is really, and if it's reinforced, That's what's there. That's the unit cohesion. Now, I have a lot to say about, I have a lot to say about this issue, but I'll start by saying that my initial response to, you know, allowing transgender people, women, and gay, LGBTQA plus people into the military destroys unit cohesion. I mean, my first response is to say that's ridiculous because you work together as a team and it may be different, but that's just, you know, we're in the military. You have to adapt. You literally adapt and overcome It's one of our old adages. Hmm. So I don't buy that. However, I will say this. I do think that there, we need to be as a culture, as if we consider ourselves progressive, which I'm not sure if I even consider myself that in a strict sense of the word, right. but progressive in the literal sense of the word going forward, We need to be a little bit more understanding of human beings and change. I'm a person who recognizes privileges of all kinds. Uh, I really do, and I acknowledge them. But I think that it's still difficult for people who have privilege in order to switch roles and really try to understand where another person is coming from. We have to allow that time for them to do that. It's not gonna be a change overnight. I'll give you a good example. In my unit, we had, this was around the period of time during the presidential elections, period of time when President Trump, the tape came out about him making derogatory mm. statements about the news reporter. I'm sure a lot of people remember. I won't repeat it. And this was something, we had a sexual harassment and, let's see, it's called SHARP, right. We had a SHARP meeting where we have to do trainings every year on this. And the majority of the room is male. They're male soldiers, and there were a couple females. A female, we say male and female, it's not derogatory, it's just the yeah. way the, the culture is. The uh, female sergeant that they're talking and opened up a really good discussion on this topic, and I had, personally, I didn't like the collective conversation we were having as a nation on it, because I felt like it was polarizing to the population. Mm-hmm. It made people, it demonized people who may have said horrible things, but in joking, because that's an unfortunate, or it's a reality sometimes. Yeah. If someone were to listen to me on a daily basis and take one bit of my, what I say out of context, it would be horrible. Not justifying those words, by the way. I'm just saying, I'm using that as an example. And open to, the unit was open to this conversation. And I didn't like the nation's talk about it because a lot of men who may be engaged in some of these, the talk in locker room talk or whatever, felt like they only had an option of saying they'd never done it. Or they had done it and saying that they had done it put them in a demonized monster hmm. category where there was no room for dialogue and wow. there was no room to actually talk about that situation. But this wasn't the way with my unit. Instead, I said that and, and I felt like maybe some of the people felt it was an end, So they started talking about their experiences of how back in the day, it used to be common to get women drunk so you could sleep with them. That was the culture. Not excusing it, by the way, hmm. just saying have yeah. names for that now, you know, consent is a thing. But back then, we we still have to acknowledge that, that was cultural and it was accepted. And But that's changed. And so one of the, you know, one of the other soldiers who was hired didn't listen he's like, I recognize where things I said was wrong. I see that what I was saying wasn't right and the things that I was doing wasn't right. And... That is huge. Being able to talk about that and allowing people to be real and the space for them to be real so they can make amends, so they can change, is huge. And I don't think we really leave room for that. It's just condemnation, and that's it.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of black and white kind of issue debates Mm -hmm. in our country right now that leave very little room for gray area kind of discussion. Mm -hmm. It's really just... Arguing either past each other or without even looking at each other. That's
2: right, that's right.
0: This episode of Miss Radio is brought to you by the Miss Muslim Student Alliance, specifically, Naraya Rizak. She is the president of the Miss Muslim Student Alliance, and she is putting on an event soon called I Am Not Monolithic. This is the Islamophobia event you've probably heard about either on Facebook or somewhere on campus or from Naraya herself. It's part of the Islam Awareness Month that is coming up during the month of Ramadan. You're about to hear my little mini interview with Naraya about the event that she's putting on. Here you go. All right, this is Gabe. I'm here with Naraya Razak. You got it. (laughs) Sweet. It's got that Q U E at the end, so you never yeah, know. it's my dad's invention. Nice. So, Noraya, I'm here to ask you about the Islamophobia event that's coming to Miss in a couple weeks. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more?
3: So the event is on uh, Thursday, April 11th, in the Irvine Auditorium, um, six or seven p.m. to eight thirty, and it's about American Islamophobia. We're having uh, Professor Khaled Beydoun come. Uh, he's currently teaching at the University of Arkansas the Law School, and he is a senior affiliated faculty at UC Berkeley's Islamophobia uh, Research and Documentation Project. Um, and the event is essentially to have a conversation about what American Islamophobia looks like. Uh, and his. He's also the author of the book *American Islamophobia*, that came out soon after President Trump's election. Mm. And in the book, he breaks down um, different definitions of what Islamophobia looks like. Especially yeah, he mentioned
0: three different parts, right? To yeah. Definition.
3: Yeah. Um, there's, I can't remember the exact terms right now, but there is, of course, uh, the, the biggest, the major part that he focuses on in. His book is structural Islamophobia that's mm. uh, codified within U.S. law in terms of anti-terrorist uh, laws and surveillance laws that target Muslim communities. Right. Um, so for the event, we're hoping to have, or he's going to give an introduction to those definitions, and then we're he's going to have a discussion um, with someone else on on stage about. Islamophobia. And so one of the things that we're doing right now is gathering questions from students and faculty. Excellent. So there's a Google uh, survey or Google form circulating uh, where we're, we want students to give any questions they may, ha- may have about Islamophobia. That so we, can we should
0: keep an eye out yes, for please. an email sometime yes. soon, Facebook, stuff like that. Yeah. Think about some questions that you might like to ask yes. Dr. Baidun.
3: Dr. Bedun. Right. Or Professor Bedun.
0: <laughs> Professor, doctor. Yeah. All right, so again, this is going to be on Thursday, April 11th eleventh from 7 to 8.30?
3: 7 to 8.30, Irvine Auditorium.
0: Irvine Auditorium. Are there any tickets we need to buy?
3: No, it's a free event, free and it's event. open to the community. Um, the only thing I would recommend is that you come early, because we're hoping that it's going to be a big turnout, um, and we've had a lot of plugs in different places, and if you want a seat, there's only so many spaces in Irvine,
0: right? Well, yeah. I mean, not not that I don't see a reason, but why should Miss students and the community here come to this event?
3: Well, if you follow current events, you will see that, or you'll know that, just before spring break, there was the uh, there mm-hmm. were two mosques, two large mosque attacks in New Zealand, That's right. and it was motivated by blatant Islamophobia, and. A lot of us believe that the US or western attitudes towards Islam contributed to that Mm. massacre Um, and so this is a way for you to or students to come and learn more about how it became that way and why we are today why we are where we are today in terms of Islamophobia um, and how to recognize it because I think that When we think about Islamophobia, it is kind of like how we think about any other hate crime, which that it's violent and that it has to be explicit, but it always isn't. And sometimes that motivates the worst violent acts possible.
0: I hear you. That's a good enough reason for me. And I think it'll be more than enough for students here at MISS. I hope so. All right. One more time. That's going to be April 11th, Thursday, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in Irvine Auditorium. Noraya, thank you very much for this little plug mini interview.
3: Thank you so much for having me. All
0: right, everybody. turn out, keep an eye out for those question solicitations from the club and uh we'll see you there Shifting gears a little bit. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about different perceptions that the public has of the military and i I keep going to the way the media either portrays the military, takes advantage of the military in terms of, say, you know, inspiring patriotic sentiment Mm -hmm. around different issues. Perhaps the way the president does that surrounds himself with generals. Mm -hmm. Um, Here at Miss, I, I would assume there's a little bit of emotional intelligence, but, um, As far as the general public goes, what perceptions of the military do you wish were different?
1: That's a good question. Yeah. I think, um, I think generally still people think of a soldier as being the military. Mm So it would be nice if there was a widening or broadening of that perspective of the different, though they're, they're airmen and they're not soldiers or they're Marines and they're not soldiers. And they're also women, they're not these, you know, six foot five men all the time, which a lot of people aren't that, It's not just women, but the image of also everyone going to war physically in a war where the landscape of war has changed so much in the last, I mean, I would say in the last decade, but even further than that, it's just changed so much due to technology a lot of different reasons remaining to technology and that's a whole different right. discussion, but not everyone's in the trenches. Some people are quote unquote fighting or defending from a desktop. It sounds strange, but it's true. Also the military, people involved in the military often are not war mongers. They're people who want to make a difference. And this is a way that they see they can serve and make a difference. A lot of people are involved in diplomatic relationships and building things and this is just another extension it's just not a big war machine I feel like Mm. people think that it is yeah because they instead see the organization and not the individuals that people the organization I will say one thing and this was something that came back to me from me eliciting responses yeah and with this interview and that was that there's, there's this notion or misconception that something's wrong with people for joining the military. And that's not necessarily, that's not true. Also that all military members have PTSD, some form of PTSD. Mm. And even if they do have PTSD, what's the stigma? Why is there such a stigma attached, attached to that? Because it really is, and it shouldn't be that way. Another thing that I've heard from several people, and this has happened at myths, that people will ask service members and veterans, have you pulled anyone? Mm. Which is yeah. is really, really not okay. Because it's just, you don't want to, you know, why? why? It seems like there's a, a lack of understanding and ignorance about the value of a life and how that may impact someone who has had to make really hard decisions about life. And it's just not something that you should ask
0: someone. Yeah. It seems like a very self-indulgent question. Obviously not everybody is able to, when they're sitting across from someone, put themselves in that other person's shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, Which leads me to another kind of improvised question here. I I know that you've spent most of your time in the States Mm -hmm. in your service, but uh, from conversations with fellow service members, have you noticed any changes in the way that empathy is practiced among soldiers, among members of the Marines, among airmen? Because I I know that we talk, we we hear a lot about this hearts and minds kind of campaign that has to come either alongside or following an actual sort of combat period.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I I really wonder, because all we see, all I've seen is maybe like 60 minutes or watching movies about the wars in the Middle East. And I kind of want to ask about the way the media portrays in entertainment Mm -hmm. portrays the military. But how much of that hearts and minds stuff actually goes on? How much of it comes home with you? Do you think military members are better equipped as a result of being in the military to do something like that, to be empathetic and understand the person sitting across from them?
1: But that's a really good question. Unfortunately, I don't really know that I'm equipped to answer it. Okay, that's because fair. Because I haven't, I haven't had that experience, and it's not a specific question I've asked anyone who has deployed overseas and been involved in Hearts and Minds endeavors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I will say the people I know who have deployed have, to me, exhibit a lot of empathy, and it seems like their empathy, they come back more conflicted than when they went about the, wow. the world and our place in it as individuals
0: and as a nation, and by nation I mean the United States. That's, that's a fascinating take on it. Uh, I find myself often, the more I learn, the less I feel like mm-hmm. I know. And <laughs> part of my commencement speech that wasn't in the summary yesterday is about how I've got more questions than answers mm-hmm. about anything that I've begun to learn about here. So what questions you ask yourself these days, whether it's related to your service or your studies here or any sort of conjunction, what questions are you asking about, say, the future of the military, the future of uh, nonproliferation or international policy and development, things that we have programs here to study based on old paradigms, old methods of addressing these issues? What questions are you asking yourself about the future of all of this?
1: I've so many questions yeah. to think about, for instance, the role of technology in future warfare. Mm. I don't know where that's going to go. There are a lot of different hypotheses for where we're going to go, you know, Space Force or, or otherwise, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm interested because of my interest in cybersecurity and where I, in my opinion, and also I heard Professor Bezekis talk about this the other day about the... Replacing what used to be proxy wars with proxy wars with proxy server wars in huh. uh, cybersecurity. That's kind of what's happening, and the see with Iran and Saudi Arabia fighting the on the on the techno front, not techno music, a technology yeah. front. These little wars instead of coming to full full bone war. I'm interested in how far that's going to go, and if technically that meets the guidelines for proxy wars what does that mean for us? I'm interested in the role of the UN. I'm wondering now that we're becoming, I feel like we're becoming more globalized, how that's going to compromise if you take the realist international relations perspective, our ideas of sovereignty. And if we go towards more of a, I believe it's a collectivist, is it collectivist in international relations? As opposed
0: to in individualist collective security. Okay.
1: For instance, the UN is it going to be empowered? Right. From my perspective, right? Or NATO, now, for that matter. Yeah, the UN has very little reinforcement mechanisms, or it's very slow. So to to be able to enact anything, but actually, that's my perspective of the UN has changed dramatically since I've been here. It's been like a pendulum. I tell no me, tell me more about that. Well, I had no use for the UN at all. I thought it was really useless. I didn't see the point of it. It sounds so harsh, but it's true. I'm a blunt I,
0: I've had those thoughts too, because <laughs> when you look at the world and all the chaos and all the suffering, and you wonder why, why what is UNICEF actually doing? What is the Convention on Human Rights mm-hmm. actually accomplishing? Mm-hmm.
1: But I will tell you, and I probably will go on a small rant here, so you'll have to. By all
0: means, we love excuse rants. Excuse me,
1: but I'll start by saying. That. I've enter, I've had, I've participated in the Model UN for middle school and also for high school since I've been here, and watching the young people represent nations, at take the personality of the nations, their foreign um, interests and national interests in mind, and then formulating resolutions to solve these huge problems in the world has kind of given me hope that there there will be. Great use to the UN in the future to avoid the, pur- the purpose is to avoid another world war. Mm. And so I kind of, like I said, that my own internal pendulum has swung the other way, and that I have more hope in the UN and have thought about applying to jobs and internships as a policy analyst to kind of gain that perspective because I have a very American or United Statesian, as I like to say, centric perspective. Despite me being here at Mintz, I still have to work very hard. To look at things from other perspectives, as far as nations go, Mm -hmm. that hardline, patriotic, southern thread that's interwoven tightly Mm -hmm. throughout my body. Yeah, but I will say that I also think the UN has a lot of merit, especially or will in the future, because of humans. As I understand our development, you know, we are. As I heard Dr. Rogowski say the other day, we are in the middle of the food chain, and so. You know, one of the things that helped us, we're not particularly strong, really, compared to all other things relative, human, yeah. Um, species or whatever. Actually, yeah. I'm not so great on the genus of. I mean species. Homo sapiens versus,
0: say, homo, like Neanderthals? Neanderthals. Yeah, sure.
1: We're not, we weren't as big and we had all kinds of other natural predators. What set us apart was our ability to learn to communicate and hunt in groups and be able to overcome some of these obstacles. And from that came these intangible worlds in which the, we actually live now, and that is conceptual worlds. So much has switched from just a a natural, you know, I'm gonna go fight for my food type situation mm-hmm. in our, what we consider developed modern world. So much has switched from that to this conceptual reality that we live in or in which we live. Politics is one of them, you know, philosophy, us talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of that and our evolution towards it, seems like this evolution is continuing, the UN has a lot of merit because that is more of a conceptual framework and basis that can hopefully trickle down to the individual countries.
0: Um, And trickle up from those uh, countries too. I mean, adapting to, as you said, human development.
1: Right. But I will say I do think that, I don't think that our bodies and our natural human nature, which is the data, (laughs) is developing as quickly as the ideas and concepts. And so I think that's where a lot of our conflict that we experience in the world comes in. So I know it's a little bit of a rant. No, I that
0: was fascinating.
1: But I I like to think, those are questions I think about, about human development. Where are we going next? (laughs) Uh, Are we going to stay there or is there going to be something prodigalismic that happens That will knock us off of our lofty conceptual thrones back into this, you know,
0: intellectual dark age. Wow. I'll be asking myself those questions (laughs) too, you can bet. Um, So if there were, I'm sure that there are many answers you can give to this next question. Uh, Again, talking about the conception of the military and the action that it undertakes around the world. Are there any campaigns or just steady work that's been going for decades, say, that you wish received more attention as far as what the military does in any branch? Uh, because all we, the American public, you can bet that what most people think about when they think of efforts abroad, they think of Afghanistan, they think of Iraq, they think now of Syria and Iran. Uh, what What do you think might change our conception of what the military actually does? What you as a current member of the National Guard, um, what your contribution to the larger picture is? That's a really good
1: question. One, I really, I don't know the answer to that. I can say that I wish that I understand that right now it's really difficult for a lot of people to have faith in our system. And I understand that (laughs) it's very, very difficult. We live, this is a very divisive time in which we live politically and otherwise on the social front and also, you know, international affairs, domestic affairs. But I really wish that most people could take a step back from where we are currently and kind of look at things from a, from a macro level and recognize that this is how it goes. Throughout our history, throughout history, there's always these changes. You know, talk to someone who's been around for, you know, someone in their 70s, and they'll tell you about another Mm -hmm. time when it was tumultuous and there was this incredible change. And I think it is up to us to capitalize on the positives that happen with change instead of getting more and more depressed about the change. For instance, I know there there are a lot of people who don't like President Trump. And I, you know, I understand the sentiment. However, I've heard people say anything's better than Trump, which I think is, is, is kind of a, it can be dangerous. Hmm.
0: Because, it glosses over a lot.
1: Right. What do you mean by anything? And recognizing that despite whoever is at the top in power, that we are in a federation of states that have control and power over their jurisdiction. And it's the time for people and the state to be able to flex their muscles. And we get to see How our how the United States actually works in this kind of environment for the good or and for the less good, I'll say. And I would just encourage people to have a little bit more faith in the system, have a little bit more faith in the not the system, the people that make up the system. Because even though we hear negative news constantly, all the time, horrible things, really, in from what I've read and what I've seen. And I heard a TED talk on this the other day, that mm-hmm. we live in one of the better times in human history in the world. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. And I think we have to capitalize on that. And, you know, as in my job, one of the things that I wish people would see, specifically after the Snowden, after Snowden came out with all of his information, and, you know, that was, from my perspective, he did not do things properly, but there are mm-hmm. measures in place within all the agencies within the United States, the government agencies in the US itself, there are checks and balances internally. And there are places, having worked in the field, you can go a route and get listened to. Because the people that I have worked with, and I say this with, with as much passion as I can muster over a microphone, have been some of the most impressive, professional, and people with integrity that you, you wouldn't believe it. And I've worked with them one-on-one with good intentions, They keep going day after day, despite the waves and the pendulum that swings, whether people hate you or people love you. They keep going to work every day, doing their job, trying to serve their country. And oftentimes they're behind the scenes and you don't see them, but they're still doing it. And, you know, like I hear people say often, you can say horrible things about the United States and soldiers and Marines and airmen and guardsmen and the rest, but they'll
0: fight for your right to say it. And that is true. Hmm. I think of that kind of ethos a lot here because I think there's, it's a self-selecting group, both. I mean, the military is a self-selecting group for the most part. We haven't had a draft in a while. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't, I guess that's a good thing. That That's a whole other can it. of worms right there. Yeah. Um, and also Miss, Miss is a self-selecting set of people who want to dedicate themselves to bettering the world Mm -hmm. generally. Uh, I don't think many people are here for profit motive (laughs) (laughs) because if so, they're going to be sorely disappointed. (laughs) Chances are, um, not that I doubt anybody's capacity here to make a buck, but when it comes to, you know, if you look at the world around you, you see people starting businesses, having families exercising free speech, say, um, how how do you kind of reconcile with sacrificing some of your I guess, life, I guess, time and energy? What how, how do you make the decision, especially as a member of the military, to put your energy into protecting everybody else's right to just go live their life free? Because I, I struggle with that every day. How much of me am I going to put into the work that I do so that other people don't have to do it? A, because I know that they may not think to do it. They may not have the capacity to do it, uh, or it just didn't occur to them. But how do you look around you and say, gosh, I want all this to continue. I want America as an idea. Mm -hmm. Freedom is a good single word summary of what America represents to Americans and the world. But how did you make that decision to come here, to join the military?
1: Well, we can break it to you, Uh-oh. but I am not altogether altruistic. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, honest, the honest answer is that it's mutually beneficial. You know, there's not a draft right now. The military, I got a language. I was able to learn Persian Farsi, and I fell in love with the culture, the food, the people that I met, the language itself. I love ancient civilizations, and I have the opportunity, although it was extremely hard for me to be exposed to that, and that is invaluable from my perspective, it's provided different uh, opportunities and access to trainings that I never would have been able to. Professionally, it's a really good move. However, I did want to find a way. Service is very important to me. Being involved in the community is vitally important to me, and I think that this was a way for me to, in some ways, more easily give back. I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain that what I just said because it, it just seems it seems intuitive for me possibly because i'm from the south too and the military is has is very respected where i'm from mm-hmm. my you know being a united statesian which i really do to realize by the way we'll do our best stuff, right? so yeah, I'm yeah. america can be america's North south North american North too North i mean america. so being from the united states i can't help but be very patriotic and being a part and being a, a person that's peopling that government and taking part in that democracy or, you know, our version of democracy, really, it means a lot to me. It just does. It's But like I said, it's, it's mutually beneficial. It's not something where I'm saying that I'm just going to sacrifice my life for everyone else, although I'm willing to die for what I believe mm. in. But that's a part of it you know what i mean yeah
0: you know yourself well enough to acknowledge that there is mutual benefit and i think sometimes it's hard for me to conceive of a position where i'm giving all that i can give um, and receiving something equal in return Mm -hmm. i feel like i have to make peace with the fact that there's going to be a generation here that has to give up more than it gets back in order for mm-hmm. future generations to have a chance of getting even a little, you know, and that's in the context of, say, climate change mm-hmm. and just increasing tensions in all sorts of dimensions around the world, among countries, among peoples within countries, over resources, over, you name it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but your answer was that was wonderful. Um To round things out here, what would your advice be to somebody the next time they meet someone and realize they're a veteran? How this kind of goes back to our first question. You know, it's not about thanking them for their service, but what's been the best way that you have been able to kind of communicate yourself to someone in those contexts and What have been the best interactions you've had with somebody who is a civilian?
1: I would say that I don't know that I'm necessarily an example because I feel like I'm very open to pretty much everything. I'll talk about anything, and I enjoy that sort of discourse. I don't have the discomfort that other people may have, other veterans may have because of their experiences in the military for a variety of reasons. But I would say just... Get to know somebody, let them bring up the topic, mm. let them talk about it. And if they, if you know that they're a veteran or, you know, a service member and they're not talking about it, there's likely a reason for that. Could be as simple as them wanting to extend past their identity as a service member or veteran, which is one thing that I've been very careful and our group has been very careful about, about here at MIS is to respect people who don't want to identify as veterans or service members and who don't want to be involved hmm. with veterans organizations because they oftentimes that is the identity. Veteran, you're labeled. And there's a whole host of stereotypes and baggage and for the good and the bad, if there can be good baggage, mm-hmm. that is associated with that label. And, you know, we want to respect that someone wants to do something different. You know, for instance, we have a old Johnny, John L. here, who is a poet, an illustrious poet, who goes and attends conferences and writes poetry, and she served in the Air Force and spent a considerable amount of time, but she's more than that. She's uh, so much more than that. And so I would say let, let someone bring it up. Let the veteran of the service bring it up and let them talk to you about it and be, just gingerly approach different topics. Be
0: respectful of that as maybe you would want. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, I hope listeners are able to internalize it. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything going on with the Veterans Organization here on campus? Any events um, or just efforts that you guys are undertaking that you'd like people to know about?
1: Well, we. I have a running um, Miss Veterans group that people are welcome to join. It's not just open to veterans, our veterans organization, and it's not just open to United States veterans or service members. We encourage military veterans from all over the world to come and join, especially Miss students, because at some point we'd like to have a speaker series where we showcase the different veterans from all over the world Mm -hmm. and the experiences that come along with that, because there are differences and there are similarities, and it's just interesting. We will have likely uh, laid back it together at some point after spring break and possibly a couple of other joint endeavors with other organizations. We just had the uh, Tech event that happened with the Terrorism Studies Mm -hmm. Club and our club. So we'll likely be doing more of that and just be on the lookout.
0: We sure will. All right, Paula, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks again to Paula Granger. That was a great conversation. I learned a ton and it's really going to inform the way that I approach the members of our community who are veterans or who are currently serving in the armed forces. I hope everybody who heard this takes it all to heart. I know that I did. Also, keep in mind what I told you about in the middle of the podcast and our little mini interview with Naraya from the Muslim Student Alliance. Mark your calendars. Thursday, April 11th at 7 p.m. in Irvine Auditorium is the event called I Am Not a Monolith, the Islamophobia conversation with Khaled Bedouin. Mark your calendars, like I said. No tickets necessary. It's open to the public. Invite your friends and people from the community. All right, that's it for today with Miss Radio. Let us know if you have any ideas. We are always open to hearing them. Alright, see you soon. Well, you'll hear me soon, and I'll probably see you soon on campus. Anyway, that's it for now.